Right. Um, Carolyn and Eric had some follow-up questions on the vaccine question. Yeah, I would really like to know if you would also get vaccinated if you were a young man, like in your 20s. Well, you know, I didn't get, I did get vaccinated for smallpox because that was a law, I think, when I was very young. That was one, that was my parents' decision. Of course, most of us walk around with a little scar on our shoulders where that, where that took place. And sure enough, I didn't get smallpox. Um, my head came from a family where there were several doctors in the family. So I got more shots than the average person, I suspect. I used to get tetanus and I got uh, a whole bunch of stuff every year. Um, we tended to do a lot of swimming in rivers and, you know, rivers tend to be polluted. So we would always get different kinds of shots for that. So I've had more than my share of that. I had two uncles and a, and a grandfather who were all physicians. So when I was younger, when I was in my teens and twenties or whatever, shoot, I didn't get, I didn't get the uh, physicals. I didn't get checkups. I didn't get vaccinations. I didn't get any of that. That was all out of my reality. So I just never even thought about it. Never did it. Once I got to the point that it was my decision, not my parents' decision, uh, I had, you know, when you're that age, you're invincible. You don't need any of those sorts of things because nothing's ever going to happen to you. That just goes with the age. So, no, I, uh, I didn't. I think I was probably in my, oh, I don't know, probably in my 40s, maybe 50s before I got my first physical. You know, you're supposed to get a physical every year. Well, I didn't. I, after that, I got one maybe every five or six, seven years. But now I get a physical every year. Because things, things can go wrong more quickly now than they could when I was young. And I'm not invulnerable as I was then. Let's just say I'm a little smarter about, about reality than I was then. Anyhow, um, now, if I were in my 20s or something, 30s, 40s, I would probably not get a vaccination because, like I say, I don't get sick. I'd rather save that vaccination, let somebody else that does get sick get it. I'd, have, I'd hate to even use it because I don't feel like I need it. I mean, I was one of these kids that everybody in my school was out with the, you know, with the swine flu or something. And it was like me and two or three other kids still still well, could go to class, so they canceled schools for a couple of weeks. That would happen every now and then when I was young and, in, you know, in, uh, uh, in school. Not in college, but younger, you know, under high school and less. So I just don't get sick. It has to do with a positive attitude, mostly. So I would not get those kinds of things because I think the risk of getting sick was very low. And if I did get sick, I'd get over it very quickly. So probably wouldn't have. But uh, like I say, I was maybe 50 before I got my first physical. But now I get them every year. That's so so it, just, it just depends on the person, Caroline. It just depends on what you think. But... You know, if you're one of those persons that gets, you know, that gets the flu every year when it comes around or somebody that gets, you know, that gets sick, gets a lot of colds, uh, whatever, you know, whatever it is. If you have a tendency to have illnesses, if you go to a doctor more than once a decade, then maybe you would be thinking about getting those kinds of things because your risk is higher. I, you know, I went many decades, never went to a doctor and except for physicals, I probably don't see doctors anymore in once a decade either so i don't i feel pretty low risk even now at my age i feel fairly low risk but i'm not as willing to push it as far as i was then young people can bounce back from things that older people don't bounce quite as well so wouldn't it be responsible for example if like now with the whole COVID thing that even young people would get vaccinated as well to not yes. 
affecting older people. Exactly. Now, it's not just you getting sick. It's about a very uh, virulent disease that's easy to pass around and is deadly to a lot of people. You know, more deadly than most of these kind of flu-type viruses are. So we have a particularly deadly disease. Last time we had one that was particularly deadly was back about 1920. And we had one that was the Spanish flu, and that was very deadly. In the three years that it went around, for three years, it modified form a little bit, come back another year, and after that three years, the low figure is something like 20 million, like 20 million deaths. High figure is more like 80 million deaths. We're not approaching that at all. Of course, we haven't been through this for three years yet either. But uh, yes, now you would get, you should get the inoculation if you're younger, not so much because of what the disease is going to do to you, because you probably are strong enough to get through it, but you give it to other people. And when you give it to other people, you're probably going to end up killing somebody. I mean, if you just look at the probabilities, you get the flu because you don't have a shot, so you get it. And you give it to, I mean, how many people do you get close to, even if you're wearing a mask in there? So you give it to two people. And if each of those two people each give it to two people, and each of those two people each give it to two people, eventually you, you, the one that started this chain, is going to have hundreds and hundreds of people that have the flu because of you. And some of those people around now, about 2% of them, are going to die from it, all because of you. You you were the source in that chain. So, yeah, you don't want to kill people. So getting the inoculation would be the right thing to do so that you don't get the flu, so you aren't as likely to pass it on. Now, getting the inoculation doesn't really keep you from getting it. What it keeps you from doing is having symptoms from it, getting sick from it. So you can have an inoculation, get the flu, your immune system roars up, shuts the flu down, and you don't get sick from it. But you did get it. So inoculations don't keep you from getting it. They just keep it from, you know, from growing in your body and from making you sick. Your immune system kills it. But before your immune system kills it, you can still pass it on to other people. So once you get the inoculation, you still have to wear your mask. You still have to distance yourself because you can get it. Your immune system in two or three days will get rid of it. But during those two or three days, you could give it to somebody else. So... Yes, go get the inoculation, even if you're young, because that makes it less likely. You're, you're only going to have, you're only going to be infected for just a couple of days before your immune system fights it off. Otherwise, you're going to be four or five days before the symptoms are bad enough that you even know you have it. And then you're going to be another, you know, four, five, six, seven, ten days getting rid of it. So now your ability to infect people is much, much bigger. So, yes, that's the, that's the whole point. If you give it just to a couple of other people, that chain is going to spread. And the probability that you will be at the beginning of that chain that kills people is not small. So you don't want to be at the beginning of anybody's chain that ends up with somebody's grandmother dying. So you need to be responsible enough to get the inoculation, and then keep wearing your mask and keep distancing anyway until our society gets this thing under control, which means we get enough people inoculated or enough people that get their antibodies from having had the disease to where the disease no longer can successfully propagate to our, you know, through humans. This doesn't find enough susceptible people. And after that, then it goes like smallpox. It disappears. So that's will take a while. That's not going to be quick. So, yeah, that's, that's kind of the, the thing with the disease. You know, it's a matter of caring about other people downstream. Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm.
All right, Tom, we'll move on to another MBT forum question. Um, this is on making sense of an out-of-body experience. Tom, I'm following your lectures for around 10 years now, but the breakthrough came with your Advanced Explorers program. That is a program that we've recently um, put up for those who have attended immersives. I often heard your advice on how to contact the LCS, but for some reason, I never processed your step-by-step -step instruction. Maybe I wasn't ready till last week. Uh, this person attended the Advanced Explorers. Here is how it worked out for me. I made up my mind what I wanted to ask the LCS for, the chance to explore different realities and learn something by visiting them. I asked for clear visuals and first-hand experiences. I got rid of the feeling to have a body. I do this by deep relaxation through autogenetic training and meditation techniques. Thought of nothing, but at the same time had the intent to see other realities in the back of my mind. So off you go. First, I could see a planet with far more continents than Earth. I could even see borders of different territories, perhaps countries. There was water and landmass. It looked like a version of the Earth, but different. Next, I was among humanoid people. It all looked very similar to Earth, like a countrified town. Maybe the light was a bit brighter, but it wasn't very spectacular. I asked for something more exotic. Within a second, someone humanoid took me by my right hand. It felt like I had a body, and we flew into the sky. After a while, we slowed down, hovered in the sky, and watched creatures flying around us. They looked a bit like big green seahorses. No wings, but it was pretty amazing. After a while, I asked my companion to show me her or his face. I wanted to know who's showing me all of this. It turned out to me and smiled friendly but the face was completely generic. I couldn't see if it was a man or a woman smiling at me. There were simply no specific face characteristics. The message was very clear. However, I can be anyone or anything to you. Next, I was back in my body, feeling absolutely cheerful. I thank the LCS for my experience. Now, my questions are, who took me by the hand? What do you think? The LCS or an entity taking care of inexperienced people like me? And two, what to do next? Now I know what you mean when you say out-of-body experiences are not necessary to grow up. Even after such a profound experience, live is nearly the same. On one hand, I'm very thankful and feel humbled. But on the other hand, I developed a new fear in the last couple of days. What if I can't repeat this success? Would it be a huge disappointment? And I'm not sure what to try next. Uh, ask to experience more realities. Ask for tests. If I already got one, oh, sorry. I did already get one a year ago. I was drowning, surrounded by waves, no chance to survive, I guess. I passed the test by going underwater intentionally and started breathing normally. As for the chance to help the LCS, sorry, ask for the chance to help the LCS in, in some way, explore my time as an IUOC, or simply ask the LCS, what do I do next? After such a long time, it's been a little bit of a shock to change my status from believing to knowing. There are so many options now, and I never thought about what to do next. Do you have any any advice or, or comments? Yeah, well, a good model for you to see this this out-of-body experience in is that it's a single-player game. Okay, so you can think of it as a single-player virtual reality game. And, and it sounds like the virtual reality game that you got was something like Explore Other Worlds. Single-player. So the the being that was Helping you was, what is it, NPC, most likely. And the things you saw were just like the title, Other Worlds. And since nothing is more real than information, then that's just as real as the information you get here about this reality. 
That's also information that you get. Except this is a multiplayer game where we interact with other players. So think of it in those terms, and it'll it'll kind of simplify everything for you. But you're you're overthinking the process. You know, what should I do next? Should I do this? Should I do that? Should I go there? Should I continue with this? Should, you know, and you you like all of these possibilities now. Just relax. Let that go. There isn't any set program or way to go through you know, a path through these experiences that is more optimal than any other path. You will find your own optimal path if you just follow your intuition. Just put one foot in front of the other and see where it takes you. Don't try to plan it out, because as soon as you start planning it out, you will have expectations of meeting that plan. These expectations will get in the way, and suddenly you'll find yourself not making any progress again, because you're full of expectations and plans. Let the plans go. Just be. If you feel moved to go on another adventure, then do that. If you feel moved that that's enough, then it's enough. So there isn't really a, a, a preferred path to take. Just continue experiencing. You grow from your experiences. So just keep experiencing. Have the thought behind your mind that the whole point of this is to lower your entropy and grow up. And yes, that is a big step. Okay, it's your first experience. When you have those kinds of experiences, you know they're, that it's a different reality is where you were. Um, you will probably have some experiences where you will gain information that you know wasn't in your head, that you know that it's coming all, it's all coming from outside you. All of this experience will add up to a, a better understanding. We understand through experience, not through reading about theory. But just go experience. All the experiences that you talked about of the things you might do are all fine. Do them all, but not at once. <laughs> just pick something that seems right to you now and go do that and see where it leads. That would be my, my kind of advice to how to go through this. Just Use your intuition and go wherever that leads you. And if you find something that's useful, something that works, then do it again. And do it again until you feel like you've kind of learned everything there is to learn about that. And do something else. And then do that again and again until you get to where it's easy. And you've learned about everything there is to learn and then go do something else. So just keep experimenting. Congratulations. Yes, it's a big step to get to where you, you know it rather than believe it. And Tom, you've, you've also mentioned before that once you have dropped into another reality, you can go back. You've got the address. Mm -hmm. so exactly. You've, you've got the address. Yeah, if you wanna, exactly. You want to go back into that reality, just bring it up. Get into that state just like you did before and just pull that that memory up, just go back there. And sure enough, that's where you'll be. You might even make a good friend out of that uh, person that was showing you around, that uh, NPC. NPCs can be good friends too. I mean, we're all, we're all pieces of the LCS. Now, Tom, you've, you've experienced a lot of different um, realities, and there's the opportunity to learn how that reality works and what their goals are and different things about them. It's educational as if, as though it's mm -hmm. any other kind of travel. What, what particular things did you learn when you re-experienced some of these places that was valuable to you? Well, I mainly, the things that were valuable to me is I learned an awful lot that helped me understand reality so that I could write the My Big Toe series. If I hadn't done all the work in Mindspace that I did over those, you know, 35 years or so, 40 years, I wouldn't have been able to write the books. You know, I still, consciousness would have been to me all theory and no application, no experience. 
So what it did for me was it gave me insight as to how things worked. You know, the fact that you can go back. It's an address. It's it's logging on. You can go back and log on to that single-player game again. What you're doing is you're gauging the LCS in a single-player game. The LCS is the computer, too. So that's what you'll learn. You'll just, with more and more experience, you'll get more and more relaxed and adept at getting around. And it will become more meaningful to you. At first, it's just like a tourist. You're just off, you know, riding the tour bus around and seeing things. Oh, wow, look at that. But uh, eventually, it becomes a lot more than that. You get to understand the, the mechanics and the processes involved. And doing these things is great practice for developing your intuitive side. That's probably the most important thing. If you had to come up with exercises to develop your intuitive side, well, out-of-body, remote viewing, getting data out of databases are probably the best exercises that you could get for developing your intuitive side. So just doing it is good because developing your intuitive side is something that will just help you live your everyday life. All right. Thank you, Tom. Uh, next question from the MBT Forum comes from in the clouds uh, on IUOCs and free will choices. That's individuated units of consciousness and free will. When I die, am I the IUOC making decisions or is the IUOC making decisions for me? Can I make free will choices from the IUOC level? Thanks so much, Tom. It is basically that when I meld with my IUOC, I'm just making choices from a much, much higher perspective, but still making those choices and doing whatever it is I want. Um, no, when you make choices, when you say meld with my IUOC, your, your choices don't suddenly go up. That's not the case. Remember, you, you as a free will awareness unit is a piece of your IUOC, and you came here with all the quality that you've earned up to that point. So you and your IUOC have exactly the same understanding, quality, entropy level. And you take a piece of that, and that's what you incarnate with. That's where you start here. Only if you have de-evolved a great deal while you've been here will you go back to your IUOC and find that it's a lot more developed than you are. So assuming that you haven't de-evolved that much while you're here or at all, then you're not going to find the IUOC to be a whole lot different than yourself. If anything, you know, you might be, you know, growing up in ways that the IUOC hasn't yet integrated yet, but that's almost being picky with terms. You know, the IUOC is getting all the information as it happens anyway. So you and the IUOC are going to be pretty close to the same thing. But you're just a piece of it as a free will awareness unit. When that free will awareness unit uh, re, you know, merges, in other words, the partition's taken down, so there is no free will awareness unit anymore. It's just an IUOC. Okay, now that happens soon after your avatar dies. And that process of, of kind of becoming more aware as an IUOC rather than a free will awareness unit takes place in a transition reality. It takes place actually pretty quickly. When you start thinking about the next incarnation, you're really acting as the IUOC. So that's, that's the way my model would look at this. Now, there are people who have a, a thing they call their higher self. And I guess that makes them their lower self. And in their mind, their higher self somehow more knowledgeable and has better understanding than they do. Well, that's just a different model. And 
they generally don't have a larger consciousness system in that model. They just have kind of IUOCs and a higher and lower version of it. But in my model, I don't have it that way. I have the LCS is a is a consciousness that's more evolved than we are. Okay, and we're a piece of that. So we can get we can interact with that. And indeed we can get information and understandings and a, a sense that that LCS knows and understands more than we do. So you may want to call that the higher self in a different model, if you like, because we are pieces of that of that system. But that that's not the way my model works. So uh, you and your IUOC are really the same thing. You should identify when somebody says, who are you? You should identify yourselves as the IUOC. That's who you are. That's your theme. That's what goes on forever. Your free will awareness unit is just a piece of that IUOC that's logged on. Okay, just a piece. And we have to separate that piece just because you wouldn't want to have all that information in your head to begin with. You know, all your past lives. You have to accumulate all that, but you don't want to bring all that into a new incarnation. That's not helpful. If you had that all that stuff intellectually, what it would do is you just learn, you just start gaming the system. Oh, here's, I know what I'm supposed to be doing. And you tend to maybe act better, but you wouldn't necessarily ever be any better. So you start from scratch with no prior intellectual side, no memory. Then you, all of the things you do, all the things you be are just an expression of who you are. So you're expressing what's in your, being level as you grow. And that is a situation where you can learn much more. So that's why we have to take a part of the IUOC, partition it off, and let it be just the, you know, just the part with the quality and not the part with the information about past lives. That's the, new, that's the reason we have to do that. Okay, so you are the IUOC. So the IUOC is not something that's above you or smarter than you are. It's just you. It's who you are. The LCS is above you and smarter than you are. And I'm sure some other IUOCs are too. And some other IUOCs are probably not as evolved as you are. You know, you're just on a path like everybody else. Tom, could Eric have a follow-up question on, on this particular topic? Sure. Go ahead, Eric. I was just wondering, um, should we think of the IUOC as a separate conscious entity in the same way that the free will awareness units, unit is a separate conscious entity? So, for example, is it possible that we as free will awareness units can interact with our IUOCs as if they were an entity outside of us? Or is that the wrong way to think about it? Well, yeah, we talk about right ways or wrong ways. You know, these are metaphors. Does, you know, does the metaphor work for you? Does it solve some sort of problem and help you understand things? If the metaphor works for you, then you can use it. And it's not a, you know, it's not like that's wrong. You know, the larger conscious system, IUOCs, free will awareness units, all of these things are metaphors. So they're not, they're not really things. So if you if you want to make a metaphor that says you as a free will awareness unit to then go interact with your IUOC as a as like individual to individual, you know, if you want that metaphor, then you could do that. I didn't see that it really added anything to the consciousness model. So because it didn't really add anything that wasn't done more simply. So that's just one more, you know one more set of relationships or interactions now to define. And I tried to make my model as, as uh, sleek and, and uncomplicated as possible. I didn't like to add any, any uh, stuff that, that wasn't necessary. So I didn't find that that kind of a model, because a lot of people do that. 
and again, the higher self is, you know, is kind of the idea. A lot of people do that, but I didn't see that that really got you any place further than a simpler model where you don't have that because then you just have the larger consciousness system. That's the source. That's the thing that knows more than you do that, that you're trying to emulate or become more like it. And you are an IUOC and your free will awareness unit is just a limited set of that IUOC. And that limited set then comes back and just the IUOC again, take away the limits of that particular set. And it's just all part of the IUOC. So there isn't anything that making that extra loop with the free will awareness unit and the, and the, uh, IUOC being able to have, carry a conversation that adds anything to the model. Have you found in your personal experience, for example, with telepathic communication, that there's the option to choose to communicate to someone's free will awareness unit or to someone's IUOC? Like, is there an, a practical difference there or not really? Well, if depends on what I want to do, but mainly I would just talk to you. If I were talking to you, I wouldn't necessarily visualize you as a free will awareness unit or an IUOC. I would just talk to your consciousness. And my intent would be to either send you information or gather information either way. And I would just get that information saying, you know, I want, I'd like to gather information on such and such with Eric or I'd like to send Eric this. And that's all I have to say. I don't, you know, I don't say, well, I want to send it to his free will awareness unit. I don't make that kind of a distinction. I'm just sending it to your consciousness, your awareness. And if I want you to get it in your intellect to where you, you hear what I'm saying and you feel what I'm saying and you get the message, then that's going to be inside your free will awareness unit. But I don't have to specify that you know i don't have to it's i never break it out i don't see that there's really any value in breaking those things up people have a tendency to divide things up into smaller and smaller pieces piece parts that's a tendency we have and you can scroll around on the internet and you'll find people that their their view of consciousness is that there's 175 levels of this and that and they're in sections of seven levels at a piece and you know they go through all of the structure all of the stuff is going on in there and basically it doesn't have a lot of value you know it doesn't give a lot now the the hindus you know do the uh, seven chakras so they break you know uh, what consciousness space up into seven different kinds of pieces. Well, breaking things up to some degree makes it easier to teach because you reduce complex things to simpler things. And you take things that are uh, very abstract and make them more concrete by giving it a place in the body. Now it's a concrete thing. So it just, that's a teaching tool. Makes it easier to teach. So breaking things up can be good teaching tools, but they're not fundamental. So if you're just trying to map out fundamental theory, then there's no need for chakras. You know, they're not, they're not useful in a fundamental theory. Teaching people to, to uh, what, do application, well, teaching tools are handy. So they're useful, but they're not fundamental. All right, thank you. Tom, the next question comes from Phil W. from the MBT Forum. There's long been a philosophical debate on the subject of math. Um, math expresses truths about reality that held even before we knew about them. He's quoting a link from Philosophy of Mathematics um, and the information in that. I take it that math expresses the whole or part of the rule set for a PMR, despite math's fundamental paradoxes and inconsistencies, or perhaps because of them. However, showing math is the true. It, however, showing math is true. Maths is used as an expression in the United Kingdom. They use it in the plural sense. Is true requires the invention of a proof. This suggests that the intent and conscious actions of individual and group 
free will awareness units, is there a hidden or explicit significance this, between discovering the truths of reality and inventing the proof of those truths in an MBT context? Yes, I wouldn't take math quite so seriously as this question asker does. Math is the logic of quantity. How do quantities relate and interact? That's it. That's math. It's the logic of quantity. Now, quantity has some logic to it. Like if you take three things and another three things, you end up with six things, right? That's logical. It's about quantity. And that's all math is. Now, this is a virtual reality that's computed. So it's computed using mathematics, but also using, what can we say, digital methods, numerical methods. You see, if we generalize the term mathematics to cover numerical methods, then you could say that the rule set is is uh, based on math. But most people, when they think of math, they think about what's called analytical math. Okay, it's the equations, closed set. They don't really think of numerical solutions so much as math. That's a computer science, not so much math. And there are no proofs. The computer science just is ways of solving problems, ways of getting answers that are not the same as the analytical methods. They're more the brute force methods. But when you have a computer, a computer, when it comes to adding and subtracting, is a brute force machine. It can do it, you know, millions of times per millisecond. So the rule set has some analytical math in it, and it has some computer Digital, what do you call it? Digital math, numerical math, computer science. It has that in it as well. And it's a combination of both of those things is what you use to produce a simulation or virtual reality. Now, the rule set is our science. Physics, chemistry, biology, they're all the way they are because of the rule set. This is how, under the rule set, our virtual reality evolved. So they're all according to the rule set. As we learn what those rules are, we call that physics and chemistry and biology. So we pick out a rule and we say, ah, you know, masses seem to attract each other. And we realize that, well, really, masses don't really necessarily attract each other. Why should that happen? It's, it's just a rule. That's all. doesn't need an explanation. It's just a rule. That's the way the rule set is. And we say, well, they don't actually attract each other. Actually, masses warp space-time. And when you warp space-time, then, uh, then two masses will tend to fall together because they both... Uh, uh, warp space-time, and you get inside the gravitational pull of one mass, it's like rolling like a big bowling ball sitting on a trampoline. Another one gets into that dip. That means it's close enough to get in its gravitational pull, and it tends to roll down a hill, too. That's gravity. So then now gravity has to do with geometry. doesn't have to do with the attractiveness of, you know, between masses. So here we have two different Discuss two different, you know, um, ideas of modeling gravity. The one that that is done with geometry is a little more general because it also deals with things that go very fast, relativistic effects. Whereas the one that just has masses attract, that model doesn't deal with things that go very fast. Well, it does. Depends on what varies. It doesn't go with things that are approaching the speed of light. It's very fast. So we can use mathematics to model what we see in the physical world. But mostly those models are not exact. They sort of are close. 
they kind of roughly model it, but they don't exactly model it because our reality is a lot more complicated. So we can we can model a, a you know a ball. You throw a ball at a certain angle at a certain velocity, and we can model the the you know parabolic trajectory that it's going to follow. And that's sort of right, but in the real world, in our virtual reality, it's not like that at all. There's air friction. There's air motion. There's temperature differences in density with altitude. We can name a half a dozen things that affect that trajectory a little bit, you see. So when we try to mathematically model the world in detail, we end up with tons and tons of very complex equations. And we still don't have it exactly right. They're always approximations. Well, this term is small, so we'll neglect that. And, you know, there's always those things going on. So we, we just try to get somewhere near what's happening in the real world. So that means that there's something going on other than just the analytical mathematics. Otherwise, we could exactly model things. Well, there's computer science going on, too. You see, there's other things happening. So it, you have to be very careful when you model reality with math. Math will try to compute predictions. I have a charge here. I have a charge over there. They're both positive. They're going to repel each other. Now I can predict what that force is that they repel each other because I've got math that will tell me how to do that. Okay, so they do that, but that's math modeling effects. So that's about, you know, you have to be careful saying that this math represents our physical world. Mostly math doesn't represent our physical world, at least not simple math. Lots and lots. Our, our, our physical world is more complex than that. But math does a good takes a good shot at it, I guess, with a lot of approximations. I think it's sort of close, which means we have some of the rule set, but not all the rule set. When you talk about math, of course, has proofs, because mathematics is logic. Logic has proofs. That's why they both have proofs, because math is just the logic of quantity. And if you can't show the logic, that is the proof of why this particular set of equation does what it does. If you can't show the logic, then in mathematics, that's not necessarily so. Without the proof, without the logic trail to go from A to B, then A and B are not connected. You have to have that logic trail. That's why in mathematics you have proofs. In logic, you have proofs because mathematics is logic. In science, you don't have proofs. You don't prove something in science. You take, you gather evidence in science. And things are, uh, you know, we, we say that, we say now that everything is theory, not laws. Newton had laws. And laws mean that this is the way it is. It shall ever be, you know, shall always be this way forever and evermore. This is the law. It just is this way. Well, we found out that wasn't true. Newton's laws fell apart. They didn't work everywhere. They just worked in uh, some areas, didn't work in others. And we've learned that we can't, to, to say that forevermore, what we understand will be exactly the thing. You know, will always be the right answer. Well, that takes a lot of arrogance to say that. There's going to be thousands and millions of years of advancement on what we know right now. And it would be unlikely that what we know right now is going to still be seen in the same way, you know, thousands of years from now. So we just have theory. We have the theory of relativity, the theory of quantum mechanics. So theory basically says that we think it works sort of like this rather than, oh, it must work always exactly like that. That's the law. 
So we don't really see math as, and, and that science, you know, mathematics gives proofs. Science just gets evidence. Okay. And evidence builds up, then we get more and more confidence in our models or in our theory. A model is another way of saying theory. So as, as, we, as we get better and better at getting right answers, then we think our model is better and better. But we should never confuse the model with reality. So thinking that there's some kind of a proof that has to do with fundamental proofs with reality, no. It doesn't work that way because computer science doesn't do proofs. And our rule set has a lot of computer science in it. All right, Tom. Um, the next question is um, asks about dissociative identity disorder, uh, which he is describing as a mental disorder characterized by having at least two distinctive, distinctly different personalities with memory gaps between them. And he wants to know how this works in light of MBT. He asks, so Tom, are these personalities partition parts of a single free will awareness unit? Are they different free will awareness units, or are they even are are they even different IUOCs logged onto the same avatar? What's your take on this? It can be all of the above. You know, they can be two IUOCs that happen sometimes that they would meld. Sometimes they just don't meld but share. Those are possibilities. But way down in the margins, it's not like that happens a lot. So you can have those things. I mean, this is a digital system. Digital systems can... can uh, can be very, very flexible. There's almost nothing that a digital system can't do. You know, they're very, very flexible. So, yes, all of those things can happen. They don't happen that often, but they can happen. Now, it also can happen that it's just one free will awareness unit that has kind of bifurcated into two pieces. And often that'll happen because of fear. There will be a fear. And there's the part that responds to the fear and the part that's in the denial of the fear. And those two can look just the same. It looks like two personalities. And matter of fact, when you're in one mode, you don't even remember about the other mode. And then when you switch to mode number one again, you don't remember most of what happened when you were in mode number two. And it doesn't mean that there's, you know, two beans in there. It just means that because of a pressure, because of a fear usually is the pressure, the personality has just split into parts. And those parts are not compatible. Therefore, they don't really remember. You are this way, and then you're some other way. And that's not as uncommon as you think, because a lot of people are full of fear. And there's a lot of people who are, you know, what do they call that, schizophrenic, where you have uh, multiple personalities and work in multiple realities. Probably most people have some of that going on in their minds, but not to the extent that it is a problem for them. Okay, but when it when you have it to the extent that it's a problem, then it becomes a disease and, you know, they get treated by a psychiatrist. But as long as it's not a problem, then they just go through life and seem like ordinary people. So it's not that unusual that people have fears. And when that fear gets to them and frightens them, there's a part of them that reacts differently. They get maybe more surly or more agitated or more angry, and they're just a different personality. And when that fear settles down and kind of goes away and can be ignored again, they don't even remember how angry they were and how upset or even why they were so upset. So those things are pretty common. 
for a lot of people. You know, when a, when a person who gets their button pushed and it triggers a fear reaction and they get really angry and defensive and mad and holler and scream and, and they're upset for, you know, a week. And then slowly it goes away because reality, you know, the other reality they live in when they're not angry all the time and upset and so on, that starts to come back. So one kind of starts to go away and the other one starts to come back. And then maybe a month later, that first personality that's mostly happy and smiles and so on, you know, it's all back in full control again. The fear's been pushed back down where it can't be seen. And everybody's happy again for a while until that fear gets its ugly head up and starts to roar and the person goes nuts and they get ups, you know, they get violent or they get uh, angry, blame everybody else for all the terrible things that are going on. Yeah, so that's sort of the same thing. And the two don't really relate. There's like two separate parts of that person, and they're bifurcated because of this, because of the fear. So the same thing gets worse and worse, and it gets more and more dramatic. Then you get schizophrenia. How does that factor into... Um lowering entropy making quality decisions how is that divide is it divided up how does that affect how the being um well let's let's say we'll just take a a person and and uh, these people are not that rare say we take a person and they have a fear they have a fear let's say a basic general fear that a lot of people have is a fear of being inadequate not being good enough and they suppress that fear most of the time they kind of feel it. They're uncomfortable. They get kind of a, you know, going on that makes them a little, uh, you know, a little different. But they smile and they laugh and they have good relationships and they talk and they go out and have fun. And the fear is just down there, but it doesn't bother them very much. And then that person sometimes they get criticized. They get told that uh, they're uh, not, you know, they get they hear things and they begin to interpret them in terms of not being good enough. Now, it may not be that that was said at all. They start to interpret things that way. They're feeling more and more insecure, more and more fearful, more and more inadequate. So they start to interpret everything that happens as something that's telling them they're inadequate. Somebody says, oh, look, the sky is really blue today. And instead of saying, yeah, it sure is, they say, blue? You don't think I know what color the sky is? What's the matter? Do you think I'm stupid? You see, because now they feel that you think they're inadequate. They're not even smart enough to know what the color of the sky is. You see? So they get upset, and they get defensive. And then when they're defensive, you know, the other person says, wow, what bit you? That just sets them right off again. What do you mean? You know, you just told me I was too dumb to know what color the sky was. You know, that's what you're doing that to me all the time. You're always telling me that uh, I'm always putting you down. And then, you know, another person's kind of in shock. You know, what's happening? You know, you know who who stole my friend? You know, and, and who is this mad person that got put in their place? And that can then start to spiral down. Because that person now sees more and more things that they interpret as put-downs. That they interpret as pushing their own insecurity and their own not being good enough in their face. So they get angrier and angrier. And pretty soon they can get downright violent, emotionally violent and upset because everything they hear, they interpret it as a put-down. And eventually... If they just kind of go off by themselves for a while or the the person that's around them just, you know, is very, very careful not to say anything that they can misinterpret, that they kind of float back out of that. And that fear gets stuffed back down into the dark spaces where they don't see it anymore. And a couple of months go by and now they're happy again. And they don't interpret things like that. Now, if you say, wow, the sky sure is blue today, they'll go, yeah, it really is. Great day, isn't it? And they won't interpret it the same way. Okay, so 
I mean, I could probably ask a crowd of a hundred people, how many of you know somebody like that? You know, and I bet there'd be a lot of hands up in the air. So that's just two personalities. And that personality that gets so defensive and angry and upset, it doesn't really, there's a break like between that and the person who's happy and smiley and enjoys life. There's a real break there. And actually, when they get back to happy and smiley, they remember, boy, I, I was really angry and upset, but I'm not sure really why, but I was, and it was terrible, and it was awful, and I felt so bad, and I felt miserable, and I you know, was thinking about suicide, and you know, they have all this, this deep depression stuff going on. So what does that have to do with growing up and getting rid of fear? Well, if you don't get rid of it, the older you get, the harder it bites. That's what it has to do with getting rid of fear. When you were, you know, when you're 16, those fears don't bubble up like that and bite you. You can always keep them hidden down in the dark places where you don't even know they're there. The older you get, the more difficult it is to ignore them and deny them. And eventually you get to an age where they pop out more and more often. So... That's, uh, you know, it's, it's easy when you're a teenager to suppress feelings of inadequacy. By the time you're, I don't know what, 50s and 60s and 70s or whatever, that stuff tends to bubble up and take part of your life away. So the message there is get rid of that fear while, you know, while it's not so hard. It gets harder as you, as you get uh, older if you don't get rid of it. It's more of a problem. You know, it gets harder to suppress. I mean, we see that a lot in the news with uh, sexual dysfunction. You you read about, you know, somebody molesting children, you know, in a kindergarten, in a classroom, or, you know, a priest, or somebody doing that, and you think, well, you know, must be some young person whose hormones are really blasting on full that's doing that sort of thing. And you find out, no, it's a... 65-year-old person that's doing that. And you're thinking, well, where did that come from? By 65, you know, their libido ought to be half asleep at 65, you know. Why are they going nuts, you know, trying to, you know, molest children? That's like a libido on steroids or something. What is it with this 65-year-old? And what you find is you have a person that for, you know, 50 of those 65 years has been suppressing this, these fears, inclinations, ideas, the way they are. They suppress it and suppress it and suppress it, and eventually they can't suppress it anymore, and it begins to interfere with their life. It's not that they suddenly got crazy or they suddenly turned into a child molester they're the same person they always were it's just that they get less and less able to suppress that dark side that fearful side of themselves so that's why you end up with these people who do these goofy things they're not crazy teenagers for the most part they're older people with unresolved fears and issues so, yeah, it's, you know, how many older people do you know who have real sad looks on their faces? You know, and how many have happy, happy looks and they're smiling and they're laughing a lot and telling jokes and how many sit around and look like they're, you know, they're really, really sad. Well, some of that maybe is just the skin droops, gives you maybe a sadder look, but a lot of that is that it's harder to deal with, with that negativity if you, you know, if you don't deal with it earlier, it begins to come out. You know, you can only throw so much dirt under that rug before the rug gets really, really lumpy and becomes obvious that there's dirt under there. So it has a lot to do with, with, with growing up, getting those kinds of uh, fears, uh, at least acknowledging them, seeing them, even if you don't get rid of them entirely, just even knowing they're there is helpful. But, uh, yeah, it's it's just part of 
dealing with fear for a long, long time, suppressing it, suppressing it, suppressing it, and eventually there's so much suppression that it pops out anyway. So that's what kind of the, the schizophrenic, you know, the average person with schizophrenia, that's not really schizophrenia, but that's just a name. It's a name that psychiatrists say, oh, when people like that, we seem to have these two personalities that don't, that are incompatible and don't really, aren't that aware of each other, and they call it a name. But it's really something that's not all that uh, uncommon. A lot of us have it. It's just we're not we're not debilitated with it. We deal with it. We get angry and we get upset and we stay mad for a week or a month, and then we get over it. It's a similar thing. Thank you, Tom, for all of your answers. Um, thank you, Oliver and Justin, and thanks for everyone who showed up today with their wonderful questions. Those of you on the screen and behind the screen. I hope we see you again next time. Tom Campbell here. INMBT Events hope you liked this video. We now have well over a thousand hours of free video on this user-friendly, ad-free YouTube channel. Though these videos are free to our viewers, they represent many thousands of hours in production and editing and many thousands of dollars invested in video and audio equipment, along with the required computers and software to store and process the raw video into finished products. So far, all of this content has been funded directly out of our own pockets. Be assured, we will always continue to do what we can. It's our life, our purpose, a labor of love that we will continue to pursue as best we can. However, those pockets are not as deep as they used to be. Thus, we are now seeking to augment our resources with support from our viewers. If you find something of significant value in our videos, please consider supporting their production through our Patreon account or through a one-time donation. The links are in the description below. Thank you.